Welcome to the Mechanics of Storytelling. In this podcast, we talk with different storytellers across various mediums about how they tell their stories in their chosen mediums, the mechanics, the techniques, and the processes. Hello, this is Ezra Justin Lee on the Mechanics of Storytelling podcast. Today with our guest, who is the co-founder of a hilarious and widely beloved website, The Toast. They are an advice columnist for Slate's Dear Prudence. He's a podcast host and even a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, welcome, Daniel Mallory Orberg. Ezra, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. Do you hear the, do you hear the applause? I do, I do. And it feels real. So I'm so excited to have you on the show for a lot of reasons. Um, I'm... I was starting to do some research and like get into your work and it got me really excited and I feel like a little bit embarrassed because I've, I've known you in passing through mutual friends, but Jesus, you're funny. <laughs> <laughs> and someone even said like, you're the funniest person on the internet. I was just like, yeah, I could see that. Oh man. Well, <laughs> thank you very much. I'm feeling very, I'm feeling especially funny today. Okay, good. That's something I was really, really proud of this morning Yeah. about the new um, Untitled Goose Game. What is that? It's a game that just came out on the Switch, and it's called... Un- I, by the way, I like I play very few video games, so I don't know if I sound ridiculous saying the Switch, mm-hmm. but um, it is an untitled Goose game, and the sort of like tagline is, it's a beautiful day in the village, and you are a horrible goose. And it's just this very simple, straightforward <laughs> game where you play a goose yeah. whose goal is to upset the people of the village. And so you, you know, hide their glasses and you steal their rakes and you upset their gardens. Do you like poop on everything? Kind of like they do in, uh, the goose do in, uh, like no, it's, it's much more idyllic. It's much more like, um, uh, mental mischief. So like huh. you have to wait for a gardener to take his hat off and then you steal it. So he has to put a different hat on. So um, you're feeling mischievous. <laughs> yeah. So I got to write, uh, sort of like in the mindset of like, I am the horrible goose with yeah. the best idea for a body and you are full of frustration. That sounds um, so fun. And it was just really, really odd and fun and great to get to do. Awesome. So, so thank you. Yes. Yeah. Today I am funny. I do want to kind of ask you about that later on when mm-hmm. we get more into the technical stuff. Because I love how you kind of assume different mindsets and then just roll with it. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, I kind of want to do just get to know your origin story, like where you're from, who you are, how you got into your craft specifically. Um, I like to talk about it in like Spider-Man terms. Okay. Like which radioactive X bit you? Okay. like some radioactive comedian bit you and you became a super comedian or something. Um, I can definitely do that. So um, gosh, in terms of just my origin story. Uh, I grew up both in Southern California and the Midwest, kind of switching back and forth between the two, um, uh, in a lovely little family of very nice people. Um, all of whom I think enjoy making jokes. Um, and so we very much had this sense of, uh, like trying to make one another laugh. And I think, um, my parents had introduced me to the writings of Robert Benchley, and PG Woodhouse when I was around 11 or 12. And I just mm. thought, this is the this is the height of comedy. This is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Like, I will spend the rest of my life trying to recapture this. Huh, I don't know that person. Is it pretty clean humor? Um, so uh, Robert Benchley was part of, I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, the Algonquin Roundtable, but that group that included like Dorothy Parker and, and a lot of like satirists in the 1920s and the 1930s. And mm-hmm. so um, 
some of it was clean in the sense that he 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 wrote for you know like the New Yorker in the twenties and thirties, um, but it was it was much more just like very um, a very smart person inhabiting the persona of a very stupid person, and that's P. G. Woodhouse too. He wrote like the yeah. Jeeves and Worcester books, and again, it would be not all of his characters, but often it would be yeah. he would brilliantly write someone very rich and very very stupid, huh. um, uh, and and that particular type of of writing, I just was really struck by. I That's found amazing. It. I feel like you see that a lot in uh, Tina Fey's TV shows, that kind of character. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The sort of like so fatuous rich person um, who, whose mind is just sort of on a different level. Yeah. It's almost like looking directly into the sun and it's sort of sort of wonderful and sort of bizarre. But they're so in their own world that it's hilarious from down on earth when we're watching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I was very much like, um, I would kind of bop back and forth between being like a very bookish child who was like always reading and didn't want to make a scene yeah. versus like I must have all the attention in the room on me right now and I want to make everybody laugh yeah and kind of um pinging back and forth between those two modes of like no attention thank you very much or mm-hmm. I need it all right now um and, and that was very much my relationship to comedy awesome, awesome. <laughs> sometimes yes sometimes get it away from me <laughs> did you uh because you do a lot of your comedy in writing form Mm-hmm. D- did you always write? Did you always write comedy growing up? Or did you get into it more in high school or something like that? Uh, yeah, I think certainly by like junior high, I was writing really goofy stuff to try to make my friends laugh. Um, like on the internet and stuff? Not quite on the internet. You know, we, we had the internet, but pretty much all you could do was like, um, you know, go to chat rooms and like wait for one website to load yeah. very, very slowly. So it wasn't quite at the level of being able to trade stuff back and forth. So you're saying you're a troll. Like no, no, no. Troll. I was, I meant like, like we'd have slam books and I okay. would try to like write stories that they thought were goofy. Okay. Um, and, and certainly by like high school, I was, you know, trying like, you know, 13 year old level satire of like books that we were reading, um, and stuff that I thought was hysterically funny. That's awesome. Um, yeah. But that was, it was pretty much the level that it was at. It was almost always written. I think, I think I got a little bit into slam poetry in my freshman year of high school. <laughs> Cause in the part of Chicago we were in, that was sort of where slam poetry had originated. And it was just yeah pretty quickly clear to me that slam poetry was not going to be perhaps my scene and that performance <laughs> might not be, um, as immediately fun as yeah. writing was yeah. yeah that's actually a really interesting topic for me personally but i imagine for a lot of listeners too who are kind of starting out in their craft whether mm-hmm. it's writing comedy etc like when you start out you're probably going to fail a number of times before you get good mm-hmm. like virtuosity is typically not immediate mm-hmm. like for you how did you push through that or how did you learn from it like what was your mindset yeah i mean certainly at that age i wasn't trying to do any of this professionally um and and i, I do know like i i think the sort of idea is to say you have to fail a lot you so you should but at least when it came to any kind of performance or anything like um, stand up or performing any of my work uh, in front of an audience I just found it really scary so I just mostly didn't do it and yeah. it sort of worked out fine for me like yeah. I just was like I don't want to fail at this the idea of huh. failing in front of a room full of people just looking at me yeah. sounds way too hard I'm gonna go right yeah and like luckily that was also when the internet um, kind of came along in such a way that you sort of could yeah. go give that a shot without needing to stand up in front of people. So I just never got good at it. And I never tried stand up and I never tried. Huh. That's surprising because uh, we're both pastors kids. We're both PKs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about your dad, but my dad, who was who is a pastor, he's quite hammy mm-hmm. on stage. And so like I kind of took after him and, you know, learned the ropes through that. 
You didn't really try that out? I, I think I have some of that. Sometimes I enjoy being on stage. It's kind of like what I was saying earlier, where like I can go back and forth between I want all eyes on, on me right now, mm. and then sometimes I'm in the mode of like, nobody look at me. Do not look at me. <laughs> um, and I think especially the idea of um, having to win strangers over in public on stage yeah. just felt like, can't do it. Yeah. Um, so I've had times when I have performed some of my work, but it's in front of an audience who's already familiar with me, usually, mm-hmm. um, and already has some sense of who I am. So it's not like starting cold in front of people who have no sense of who you are or any desire to be polite to you. <laughs> um <laughs> So, yeah, I, I would say some of the stagecraft I picked up and some of it I just, I don't have the heart. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah. You kissed my ankles under stars, you told me they were all for me, I believed. This is Ezra Justin Lee on the Mechanics of Storytelling podcast today with our lovely and brilliant special guest, Daniel Mallory Ortberg, who is a podcast host and advice columnist a comedy writer, and even a New York Times bestselling author. So we'll be back in a moment, but in the meantime, enjoy the music and also the random goose honking sounds you hear in the background in honor of Daniel's beloved goose game. So this is going to be a slightly embarrassing question. Good. So you can answer it however you wish. Okay. And even deflect. Uh, I'm. You're you're kind of famous, and I don't know if you're always kind of famous, but like, how do you deal with that? Has that has that been tough? Is that weird? Is it great? Uh, yeah. So I don't think I have always been famous. No, not at all. Um, and I think the kind of famous that I have, the kind of fame that I've experienced has been a really great amount. It means maybe five or six times a year, somebody says like, hey, are you Daniel Ortberg? Mm-hmm. And they're like, I really like your books. Um, or it means I get to, if I have a book come out, usually go to a couple of different cities to talk about it. Uh, and and not the kind of famous where you're like, ah, oh, the price of fame. I can't go anywhere without getting <laughs> followed by the paparazzi. Um and some of that's also shifted with transition. Like I, I had deleted my Twitter account for like a year. And when I kind of came back to Twitter, I've still never um, had the same size audience that I used to. Like it's still much smaller than it used to. Like mm. I think there are straight up some people who just thought like I disappeared. Like, wow. I lo- I, you know, I, I, I'm sure that there are other ways to do it. Like I know people who have transitioned like with the same um social media accounts and mm-hmm. that, that hasn't looked exactly the same but like the way that I did it I sort of yeah. like if I had that to do over again I would not have like lost half of my audience yeah. just by virtue of like some people are like I wonder whatever happened to Mallory Orper yeah like, eh, I'll move on with my day so that was like um from your transition from Mallory to Daniel Mallory exactly um, yes okay. I see. Yeah, okay. so that was about at this point two something like two years ago. Yeah. And the year before that I, I had just felt very like again in that mode of like, I don't really want people to look at me. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going mm-hmm. through something. I don't know where it's going exactly yet. And yeah. I don't want to be asked a lot of questions about it. So I just wanted to sort of like batten down the hatches. Yeah. Um, it's a deeply personal decision, right? And very totalizing in terms of your life. Yes. Yeah. And I think kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, again, the the sense of like, when do I want people to look at me? When don't I? Yeah. That felt very much like uh I don't even know how to explain a lot of this to myself. Sure. So I don't want other people 
you know, even though I think most people are generally reasonably polite about it, yeah. um, I, I just did not want anyone to, you know, there's just times when you want to be invisible. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, how has your trend transition influenced the way you work um, or even the products that you're coming up with? Yeah. So for me, you know, I didn't really deeply start thinking about transitioning until after the toast had had closed. So there was already kind of this sense that a big chapter of my life was finished and, mm-hmm. and I wasn't really sure what was going to come next. Like I had a, a day job, um, but I wasn't working at, at nearly the level that I had been previously. And there was sort of this sense of like, I'm entering my thirties. I'm no mm-hmm. longer this like scrappy young kid. Um, wh- what's next and what am I doing? And I think there were a lot of ways in which I just didn't, I didn't have a script for the kind of career that I had had and the kind of transition that I was undergoing. Like there were not a lot of my professional contemporaries um, who had been doing what I was doing and then had transitioned. So I didn't have a a huge sense of a roadmap. I mean, obviously there are plenty of trans people working in um, like comedy or or, or in um, journalism or, or in media, but the, a lot of them that I was aware of at least um, uh, either had like developed their career after transition um, or their transition looked really different from mine right. or they transitioned younger than me. So yeah, I, I think a lot of it was just like, I kind of had no idea mm-hmm. um, what was going to come next. And um, I haven't always felt uh, supremely confident in the sense of what's changed, what's different. What do I still feel comfortable doing? What feels no longer comfortable in quite the same way? Um, where do, um, where do I fit in in terms of like, um, since a lot of the conferences that I'll attend or a lot of the kind of populations I write for tend to involve like feminism or, or, or queerness, often Mm -hmm. there's that question of like, well, we were a women's event. Um, (laughs) yeah. So, so sometimes it's, it's just lots of question marks and lots of figuring things out. And some of it looks like, um, writing about a goose video game and imagining what that goose thinks every day. And, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. that's kind of a rambling answer, but I think that's the best I got. No, that's good. Do you feel, like, more grounded than you did back when, at the initial stages? Yeah, s- sometimes. Sometimes I think I also feel less sure of myself, mm. and I would say that that kind of toggles back and forth uh, a, a certain amount. There's times that I do feel more grounded. Certainly, I think I feel more able to check in with myself than I used to, yeah. to, to sound... Um, little like therapy speak but, but I once don't... you're once you're like a once you feel like more like a man I feel like you'll just feel <laughs> uh, everything that you don't know about I think it's it's less like oh a man feels this way and a woman feels this way and it's a little bit more like once you've transitioned and you have like told people the thing you were afraid to share with them it's sort yeah. of like okay well other things don't look as scary like sure. I've already told this part of myself that I wanted to never share with people so you know nothing else is going to be quite that intense ever again wow that's pretty um that's a pretty interesting perspective really transformative i think i think so certainly it's yeah it's very much like listen i've already told my grandmother that i was gonna you know you told your grandma yeah oh yeah i mean i see my grandma she's gonna notice that like (laughs) i look very i have a full beard now yeah well Um, on some earlier well i have friends uh who who came out Mm -hmm. and they're Asian, and it's very stigmatized, maybe even more than in other cultures. And so they, they don't even tell us about their relatives. So. Totally. I did, sorry, I didn't mean to imply that everybody does. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, um, and that's not what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get you. But yes, I, I, I did. 
Um, although, yeah, I also went back and forth about whether or not or when I wanted to do that. But um, that was a scary day. That yeah. was, you know, it's not, I, I don't think most people are like, boy, I sure hope I get to have a conversation with my grandparents about mm. how I feel about my body or like what <laughs> hormones I would like to take. So yeah, um, uh, it was a relief to have done that. And they both were really, really, um, ultimately really lovely about it, which I'm so grateful That's for. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And- and not like a guarantee. Like I did not start that conversation no. thinking this is going to go great. And it took time, obviously. Sure, sure. Um, that's a really beautiful act of courage. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, of course. Uh, on the topic of transgender identity, and we were talking earlier about comedy, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, have you seen uh, Dave Chappelle's latest special? I haven't, but I feel like he has a special every six months now where he's <laughs> like, I'm coming back out of retirement. I'm like, didn't you do this like nine times in the last five years yeah and he kind of says like similar transphobic jokes every time (laughs) yeah yeah you know what i mean i remember that from his you know back when he was doing the show it was gay people and now it's trans people like he's had a pretty pretty strongly anti-gay and trans part of his comedy the whole time i could see you from afar Smiling with your friends As her wish you save my soul As I wish Hello again. As you might have guessed, this is still Ezra Justin Lee, and you are still listening to the Mechanics of Storytelling podcast. Today with our special guest, Daniel Mallory Orberg. And actually, in a moment, Daniel's gonna talk to us a little bit about his technique, his craft on writing and comedy. So stay with us. He was laughing in my face As I wish he saved my soul As I wish he saved my soul We talk more about technique. Okay. And I, I kind of wanted to focus on uh, your comedy writing mm-hmm. because... I, I think it's very funny. Thank um, you. Yeah, and I, I noticed something that you do in your first two books, mm-hmm. a text from Jane Eyre and... The Mary Spinster. The Mary Spinster, your yeah. second book. Yeah. Is um, you, you do this thing where you assume a character's identity, uh, take, kind of take on their psychology and then kind of channel them. Yeah. But in a really hilarious way. Uh, this is interesting to me because I'm trying to get into acting and this is something that actors have to do too. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I be someone else? Like... Uh, what gets you into that mode? Yeah. And everyone has their own way of thinking about it. I'm curious, like, what is your approach to that? Yeah. I, I, I think I love intensity. Like, oftentimes in both of those books, I think um, what happens in that moment is I find what it is that makes a particular character unbelievably intense and kind of a steamroller. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think kind of going back to, like, before where I said I've, I've always had this part of me that's like either I want no attention at all or all of it. Mm-hmm. So there's that part of me that relates to a desire for intensity or bringing something to a climax or bringing something to, like, a, a crisis point. Right. Um, and I just think of, like, what would I do if I wanted to turn something into an emergency mm. <laughs> right now? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, I, often I think the most work – will go into figuring out what is the crisis point for this particular personality. Mm-hmm. And then once I can 
identify what that is. The rest of it kind of falls into the pla- into place in the sense of here's how they would go about getting the reaction that they're looking for. Here's how they would either like alienate or frustrate or excite this other person that they're trying to get a reaction out of. Right, right. Um, and now let's just go for it. Okay, I like that. Uh, you you kind of try to see it from the histrionic aspect. <sighs> but yeah, I like to look for the most over-the-top moment for that particular personality. Right, yeah. right. Could you could you walk me through, like, is there a typical process in terms of, like, how you craft a joke or even, like, a jokish story? Yeah. Gosh, I, I, I will try it. Let me think. Um, I think the, just because it, it's so fresh, like, I'm thinking about the goose game. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was with friends this last weekend, and... Um, my friend was playing the game on and off and I was watching and there was just... Is it a solo game or interactive? It is solo, yeah. Okay. And you could, you know, you could play through it in probably an hour. It's pretty simple. Hmm. You know, you just go fuck shit up in one village and then nice. you're done. Um, and I think there was something just about the way that we would all watch this friend of mine play it and the way that we all kind of gloried in this sense of like... Um, incredibly low stakes but also like unbelievably powerful like yes yes steal the gardener's carrot (laughs) throw it in the lake throw it in the lake um and just you know as we came back to it throughout the weekend I just kept thinking about like what does it feel like to be the most obstructionist force Hmm. in the world um and so by the time I think I was thinking about today what I was going to write for the newsletter you know, I'd seen another friend of mine say, like, I think the goose from Untitled Goose Game is going to be the most popular stick and poke tattoo template for winter 2019. Oh, wow. Um, which was just like, yes, of course, because those two populations would completely overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, there was just something about that moment that was like, I got to write about the Untitled Goose Game. And it's got to have something to do with, like, the absolute glory of this horrible goose that just loves itself so much um, and delights <laughs> in terrorizing other people yeah and what does it feel like to feel that good about like the weird weird body you live in all the time so it was Mm. really sort of about like um yeah the goose the goose to me is an example of like well that's how you love your body you be a goose Mm. um you're like half of a bag and half of a snake (laughs) um and you just make problems yeah i like that uh for that specific instance you're you're learning about their psychology by playing a game, just mm-hmm. having fun. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of your approach? You, you try to have fun wearing these different masks? I usually do, yeah. yeah. Usually the, the hardest work is is getting um, getting myself in their mental position. Uh-huh. And then once I have done that, then it just feels like I've opened up a channel to something and it sort of writes itself. Yeah, because it's... often find. I imagine a lot of it's kind of instinctual and it just flows once you're able to believe, like mm-hmm. have faith that, oh, I am this character, I believe in this character's psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then conversely, whenever I try to do a different style of writing, mm-hmm. like longer narrative, a no- you know, if I were to ever try a novel, if I were to write like a, a more argumentative style essay or, or, or even just like a descriptive style essay. Mm-hmm. I often really struggle with that. That doesn't come as quickly to me. Huh. That feels more like work. Have um, you been working on that? Uh, you know, just periodically when I write something longer or reported yeah. for uh, a, a, a website or a magazine, um, or as I contemplate, you know, my next book, I would love for it to be something a little different from the first three. For sure. Um, and yeah, that kind of writing often feels just more like work to me and less like play. Yeah. Um, and so there's a type of writing that comes really easily to me, and there's a lot of types of writing that, that doesn't. And mm-hmm. I think that's part of why I really prioritize the writing that feels the easiest. For sure. Yeah. Something that I, I noticed that you do in your comedy is 
you draw in associations with uh, the character that you're assuming, mm-hmm. and you do it in a way that's both familiar because we're familiar with the association, but it's delightful because it's like an unexpected kind of a comparison sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something you just do naturally or do you do it more mechanically? Because I know like some stand-up comedians, they even have like, uh, I don't know, like Rolodexes of their jokes and uh-huh. different associations that they could draw to to make a joke funny. Yeah. Is that something that you do as systematically or is it is it more like just out of your head? Um, I love the idea of having a Rolodex. I don't know that I've ever actually seen a Rolodex in life. Like I know what it is from old movies, but Mm -hmm. um, I wish I could get one. I would not know where to get one. I think oftentimes uh, that is the hardest part of the work, and I do it mentally. Like, I usually don't have stuff written down until I'm writing it. Um, But, yeah, I do love to, you know, make those connections, or or I I love trying to compare something to something else. So, again, like, part of the fun of this morning was, like, a goose is half a bag and half a snake. Yeah. And just once I had that, it was just like, yes, it's half a snake, it's half a bag. They meet in the middle to create mischief. That's what a goose is. Um, and, and I get so much joy out of coming up with that description, um, which I think is immediately recognizable as true. Yeah. And also... Oh, you came up with that yourself? It's not a tagline or something? Right. It's not. No, it's not oh, from the game. That would have really been amazing. Good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then once you get that, you're like, yes, I think if I say that, other people will say, yes, that is what a goose yeah. is. And snakes are like sneaky, so like this goose character is sneaky and so exactly. forth. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you get mm-hmm. it. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Uh, when you're writing, though, uh, like a lot of stand-up comedians, they iterate on their jokes. Either like they tweak the details, mm-hmm. the the delivery, the timing, or even the words. Sometimes mm-hmm. is that something that you do in yours as well? I will sometimes uh, go back and tweak something. Um, I, I would say less. I don't do that more than half of the time. Um, I do think there's something nice about being able to see it all written out is I can take my time. I don't have to tinker as much um, because I, I don't have to repeat it over and over at various uh, performances. So I'm, I, yeah. I think that's one of the advantages of of writing out something funny rather than delivering something funny. For sure. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm just asking you questions like, how do I, how do, make me funny, <laughs> make me funny. <laughs> well, and there's, there's, there's so many different ways to be funny. And, yeah. And I think there's kind of that, tension between if I work really really hard can I become more funny versus Mm. the idea of the sort of natural talent of like somebody just walks on stage and tosses off a couple of hilarious ideas and I I think there's ways to you know people talk about something like tightening your humor there's this idea that the best kind of or the most interesting kind of humor can be whittled away and refined and discovered Um, and yet I don't know if um it's purely a matter of technique either. Mm. Um, and so it's it's some combination of instinct and some combination of work. And, and the work has to be in service of a greater idea. It can't just be if I take this sentence and I whittle it down and I whittle it down, eventually I'll get to a funny word. Yeah. And, of course, you'll get something that's going to be funny to some people and not at all to others. There's always also just that sense of almost nothing is funny to everybody. Yeah. Um, except yeah. for maybe... The goose. Again, not what I've written about the goose, but just the image of the goose yeah. stealing a hat. I think that's as close to universally funny as you might get. You got to show me this later. I, I have, oh, I will. Yeah, this is amazing. It sounds I, amazing. Allow me to tell you the good news about the goose. The good goose. Yeah. The good goose. Uh, something that I've been hearing uh, from comedians who are critical, or just like normal people even, <laughs> is like, hey, man, uh, when you try too hard to be funny... You're not funny. Hmm. 
And mm. I think there's some wisdom there. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of ancient because it's it's not like a new saying. But uh, how do you balance that? Because on, on the one hand, there is like an instinctual part of you that is comedic. Yeah. But the other hand, it's like you're trying and you're doing a new thing and, yeah. and so forth. And it's funny too because, you know, everybody, whether they're, you know, uh, a stand-up comedian or they're the writing comedy, um, you are, of course, working very hard, even if you're not a person who's given to a lot of, like, technique talk. Um, of course you're trying very hard, and of course you're putting yourself out there publicly, so nobody's just like, oh, no, I accidentally told a bunch of jokes. It's kind of a fantasy or, or a myth that somebody is just so confident and self-assured they just, like, mm-hmm. accidentally trip onto a stage and say something funny. Yeah. Um, but I think you're also right in that... Um, if there's an air of desperation, unless that air of desperation has been like carefully calculated, mm-hmm. that can also result in a joke um, not working. I, it's funny too. Now I find myself <laughs> using this language of like a joke is something either that works or doesn't work, huh. um, as if again it's like a, a game that you can solve by by trying to you know get through a puzzle enough times. Yeah, um, that's a very decisive statement, very intense statement. Yeah. So yeah. I, I guess. Um, yeah, it, it is It is easier to say what's not funny than what is. Yeah. It's easier to say what doesn't result in a more interesting joke than what does. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I do think that um, wanting something to be funny doesn't always make it funny. Except sure. every once in a while it does. So, like, there's <laughs> always an exception, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious about your forthcoming book. It's going to be published, or it's going to be uh, available in February of 2020. Yes. Um, did you want to talk a little bit more about it? I, I don't know if it's a comedy or not. Yeah. It seemed like a collection of essays, right? Yes, yes. I, I also, as I was writing the book, was not sure if it was going to be comic or not. Mm-hmm. So uh, I share your indecision <laughs> there. Um, it's called Something That May Shock and Discredit You, and it is a collection of essays that's about religion, pop culture, transition, um, uh, it has a lot to do with the idea of William Shatner, not the individual, mm. but like the idea of him. Yeah. Um, I think parts of it have humor in it. It's not a collection of like, um, it's not like a David Sedaris book. Um, and, and it's not just an assortment of jokes, but I do think there's a lot in it um, that is funny, or at least was funny to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's definitely, again, a relationship to, um, maximizing intensity yeah, in, in okay, various like directions. And it's like also that. in a lot of ways revisiting some of my earlier work in the light of my own transition in ways that are sometimes funny and are sometimes serious. And, mm-hmm. you know, the cover is like this big tortured picture of uh, Lord Byron, who I've often written about. Yeah. Like kind of just uh, like pulling at his own face. And it's such a like campy, histrionic, like male disaster. So good. So many cover. lines on his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, I, I was really happy about that. That meant a lot to me. Yeah, that was excellent. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, who do you write for? Do you write for yourself? Do you write for others? Do you write for no one? Um, I, I certainly, like, I often like best the pieces that I write that I think have made me laugh. I often write for my former business partner, Nicole Cliff. I, I always have I found her taste in... Um, uh, at least in my work, very inspiring. Like mm-hmm. when the things that she has liked have always felt like they've prompted me to do better. And um, I often write to impress other people that I think is funny. I often get kind of like comedy crushes on various people. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I hope that I can make this particular person laugh. Like with this goose. Mm. I get it. Sorry, I feel like I came on your podcast and all I want to talk about is this fictional goose. <laughs> 
But with this goose piece, my friend Matt, who had been the one playing that video game, yeah. was like, I really want Matt to laugh at this. Like, if I can get Matt to think this is funny, yeah. then that will mean a lot to me because I feel like we appreciated the goose in a very yeah. similar way. So it's part of the, like, you want to laugh with someone. That's, very that's much part so. of it too, yeah. Yeah, very much so, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that. So, you know Pete Holmes? He's a comedian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I really love his comedy just because... I think he's pretty different from a lot of other mainstream comedians. Okay. He has this podcast, and at the end of his podcast, he always gets into, like, faith and spirituality. Oh, wow. And he asks always, like, so where do you go after you die? Hmm. And so I'm curious, uh, Daniel, where, where do we go after we die? Oh, man, I, I feel like we got to ask Pete Holmes. <laughs> um, you know, uh, at, at the risk of sounding like... Uh, just very boring. I just don't know. Yeah. I, I, I think it's one of those things that feels like, you know, it just seems like if I think enough about it, I should be able to figure something out. Mm-hmm. And I often do think about it, again, with the hopes of, like, if I worry enough about this, I will get a clear answer. Um, and then there's other times that I think I don't want a clear answer at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, yeah, I think my answer to that one is I just do not know. I have no idea. It sounds baffling to contemplate any of the possibilities. Um, they all strike me as equally terrifying and interesting. And yeah. uh, I, I sure I sure hope something I would like <laughs> to continue to exist for ever and yeah. ever and never be gone. And not nothing, right? Yeah. Oh, man. That one's really hard for me. I, yeah. I, I find people who are comforted by the idea of, of consciousness ending with death. Mm-hmm. very surprising to me. I don't relate to that at all. Um, yeah, I personally, I don't know how I would answer that. Yeah. But one of the happiest moments of my life mm-hmm. is when I was in Hawaii on vacation alone. Uh-huh. And it was such a great time on the beach and so forth. And I was sleeping and I woke up one day to an alarm in the hotel mm-hmm. and it was saying like, uh, there's an emergency. So I checked my phone and it said, a nuclear missile on the way. I remember that. Yeah, from like North Korea and like this is not a drill. Yeah. And I remember feeling panicked for a few seconds, but then extremely, extremely happy. Oh, wow. For like the next 15, 20, it was like one of the happiest moments of my life. Wow. And it was because like, oh, I don't have to be an alcoholic anymore. Mm. I don't have to be like worried about my neuroses. Mm -hmm. Like I can, and also I can say bye to everyone before I go. Yeah. Like you see coming, it was, it was all these things. Wow. Um, but it's weird because, yeah, I don't know either mm-hmm. what's after. But yeah, that piece, I think there is also peace in the sense of like, I don't have to be the one who answers this question. Mm-hmm. Whatever whatever is in charge of this, it's not me. Yeah. And we'll um, find out. Yeah. it's It sounds very much like um, Melancholia. The movie, I mean. Not, oh, like, the okay. The old-timey okay. diagnosis. I haven't seen it, but maybe I should. It's, you know, um, I hope nobody minds spoilers on an older movie, but... Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, it's a movie with Kirsten Dunst, and she plays a very depressed woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's at the wedding of, I think, her sister, and they, like, find out that a, a, a huge comet is going to strike the Earth. It's a very stylized movie. And her sister just kind of falls apart emotionally, and Kirsten Dunst just kind of like comes to life, and she's just like, "Yes, now we have clarity. Now we have certainty. Now there's nothing to worry about." She sort of snaps out of her yes. uh, depression. Um, I love that. And then you know the movie ends with the asteroid crashing to Earth and everyone dying, and Kirsten Dunst is very happy about it. So, oh, it actually happens. Oh, absolutely. There's yeah. a spoiler. It's a re- I told you it was a real <laughs> spoiler, but um, I-, I recommend watching that movie. I think that you might find it really moving. Yeah, I think I would. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Um, I don't 
I have tons more questions, but we have so little time. So before we go, I was wondering if you could direct our listeners to where they could find you on social media or even where they could find your forthcoming book. Yeah, absolutely. So um, again, my book, uh, Something That May Shock and Discredit You, is available for pre-order. Uh, it's it's coming out from Simon & Schuster, so you can uh, find it on Amazon. You can find it on IndieBound. You can request for it at your local library or pick it up at your local bookstore. Um, and you can also find it on the Simon & Schuster website. And then I'm um, at Daniel Orberg on Twitter. And I have a, a newsletter called The Shatner Chatner um, that I, I think is fun. I sometimes How would you sign up keys. for that? Is there like a website or if something? If you just go to – this is terrible. I should really know the like, actual URL. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's just shatnerchatner.com. Okay. If you Google Shatner Chatner, yeah. I will be the first result. I feel confident of that. Okay. Um, All right. And you'll be able to sign up um, either for free or if you want the extra stuff, you can pay. But you can get all the good stuff for free. So Awesome. You know, don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, so, you much. so much for being on the show, Daniel. It was just lovely, lovely to be here. And now you're going to have me thinking about uh, Kirsten Dunst and – her remarkable body of work for the rest of the afternoon, which is pretty cool. Have a very existential afternoon. Thank you. Hey again, it's Ezra, your host on the podcast. And as with all good things, this episode too must come to an end. So let's do some call-outs. Today's special guest was writer Daniel Mallory Orberg. As for music, the intro was by Eric Chow, interlude music by me, and closing music by John Ringhofer of Half-Handed Cloud. If you want more information on the podcast, you can visit our website at mostpodcast.com. We're also on Instagram under mostpodcast. And that's a wrap. So until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. And if you're working on art or stories, keep it up. Take care.